First Chronicles is how the book connects together. In one sense, I believe that this theme of bringing the ark into Jerusalem is almost the central theme of the book. Because once we get to the ark to Jerusalem, we got another situation. Where do you put the ark? And we've already talked about, you know, they set up a little house for it, a little tent or whatever, but that's not really where God intended for the ark to be. And so the rest of the book uh, kind of works toward the building of a temple as a place where the ark can actually be, a temple that would replace the tabernacle. And we're going to see in chapter 17, we've got the question of who's going to build it. In chapter 18 to 20, we've got uh, the political conditions that allow the temple to be built. In chapter 21, we have the place chosen for the ark to be built. In chapter 22 and 28 and 29, we have the materials collected for the building of the temple. We have the blueprint for the building of the temple. In chapter 23 to 27, we're going to have the various people to serve functions at the temple. And then in Second Chronicles, the first few chapters, we're going to have the actual execution of the building of the temple and the ded dedication of the temple. So really bringing, you know, this, this whole thing. We chose Jerusalem, we brought the ark in, and now we've got to find this, we've got to build this, this temple for the ark to reside in. The books of Chronicles are very temple, ark, Jerusalem, Levite, worship center. It, it, most people would say, and I think for good reason, that Chronicles was probably written by a priest or a Levite or somebody very associated with the worship of God. It's a, it's a, a more God-centered perspective. Kings gives you the more historical-centered perspective. What you're seeing in Chronicles is much more the spiritual perspective, the worship perspective, the temple Jerusalem perspective. Now, we're going to do a lot of historical stuff in 2 Chronicles, and we've done some in 1 Chronicles, but even that is more focused on the Lord's involvement with those things. Um, it makes 1 Chronicles either boring or exciting, depending on how you feel about those kinds of things. Uh, very different for us. We don't think about this very much. Obviously, we don't worship at the temple anymore. We don't have an ark anymore. And so we've got to work harder to see the parallels for us. But, uh, but that's really the focus. We really, we, we're almost you know, in the heart of First Chronicles, bringing the ark in and now working toward a place for the ark to be. All right. Um, would somebody read chapter 17, verses 1 and 2? Now it came to pass when David was dwelling in the house, that David said to Nathan the prophet, See how I dwell in the house of Peter? But the ark of the covenant of the Lord is on our tent curtain. And Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. Okay, so what's David thinking? You know, he wants to do more for the Lord. He wants to build something for God. And why does he want to build a permanent structure for the ark? think about that good attitude don't you think you know here I live in a, in a real nice house and the ark's just in this tent we need to build a, a, a real house for it and what did Nathan think about it Nathan the prophet great idea go for it God is with you well not even a prophet 
always gets it right unless he's heard a word from the Lord. And that's what we have next. Any comments to, uh, before verse 3? All right, 3 to 14. It came about the same night that the word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell David, my servant, thus says the Lord, You shall not build a house for me to dwell in. I have not dwelt in a house since the day that I brought up Israel to this day. But I have gone from tent to tent, and from one dwelling place to another. In all places where I have walked with all Israel, have I spoken a word with you, with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built for me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be leader over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a name, like the name of the great ones who are in the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, will plant them, that they may dwell in their own place, and be moved no more. Neither shall the wicked waste them any more, any more as formerly, <coughs> even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you. And it shall come about, when your days are fulfilled, that you must go to be with your fathers. That I will set up one of your descendants after you, who shall be of your son, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house. He shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son, and I will not take I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it from him who was before you. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Well, that night the word of God came to Nathan. And uh, how did God view this plan of David's that Nathan had endorsed? Wasn't God's plan at the moment. Wasn't what wasn't the way God wanted it done. You know, not even the combined will of the king and the prophet managed to change God's will about this. Really, it's up to the Lord. Who builds what when? It's God's house, and he's going to tell them, he's going to take the initiative, and he's going to set up how this is going to be done. So how many times do we do what Nathan did? Yeah, sounds like a good idea to me. Go for it. And not stop and listen to the Word of God as far as what ought to be done. I do that. You know somebody says something? Sure. Sounds great. Uh, well, what would the Bible say about that? <laughs> now, how would God feel about it? Sometimes we just don't even ask that question. I'm not trying to necessarily down Nathan, although it does seem to me that the Lord is to some extent correcting him. The Lord is, came to him that night and says, I want you to go back and tell David, you guys don't have this right. Um, go tell David, my servant, thus says the Lord, you shall not build a house for me to dwell in. I think that's the emphasis there. It's not that God refuses to have a house, but it's not David who's going to build it. Later on in First Chronicles, we're going to see why God did not want David to be the one to build it. It wasn't because David had done something wrong, but we will see the, the reason for that uh, in time. And uh, basically, God says in verses 4 through 6, you know, I never have lived in a house, and I didn't ask you to build me a house. 
<laughs> and you're not going to be a one to build me a house. In fact, God shifts gears. He says, what I, what I can do for you is more important than what you can do for me. No, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build one for you. <laughs> and this becomes the basis for one of the greatest promises that God ever made. God was going to do his own architectural work. He was going to build David a house. Um, look at verse 10 particularly. Moreover, I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you. Now what did he mean by the idea that God would build him a house? He was going to have a continuing dynasty. He was going to have a continuing uh, kingdom over, over Israel. And uh, he would establish his throne forever. David had in mind to build God a house that wouldn't last. God was going to build David a house that would last forever. Um, and, and he would continue his blessings with David's descendants. And, and ultimately, this forever kingdom of David's descendants points to who? Jesus. I mean, there was no human king. The lift that lasted forever on the throne. But Jesus established an eternal throne. This was the house that God was going to build uh, for David. I want you to know something else that I think is important for us to recognize. Um, and that is verse 13. When God made someone king, it's like he became a son to God. He developed in that a father-son relationship. The installation of a king is making him God's son, in a way. You remember um, the passage in Psalm 2, where it says, I um, can't quote it right now, but it's quoted several times in the uh, New Testament. Um, you are my son, today I've begotten you. What's that saying, today I've begotten you? And people think about, well, when did Jesus become God's son? And when was Jesus born, or whatever? No. The idea today I've begotten you, that today I've put you in as king. I installed you as my king and developed this special father-son relationship that the king had with God. Really, the king on the throne was like God's um, representative. He was exercising God's authority on the throne. So that concept of a father-son relationship between God and the king is a concept that we see a few times in the Bible. All right, comments and questions uh, through verse uh, 14. I think it's impressive, and this is another kind of that look at maybe for the future, is that, yeah, what David had in mind here by building a house for the temple, or building a house for the ark, building a house for God, was the right attitude to have. And I think that it's impressive to see that he wanted to do that, first of all. But then I think it's really impressive to see that even when... Uh, the Lord tells him it's not him who's supposed to do it. He didn't. Uh, he was just as thrilled to do as much as he could to help with that. He wasn't discouraged that he wasn't. He couldn't be the one to build it. I mean, we'll see that he makes every preparation that he could. And I mean, it's almost like the importance he places on building that temple is just enormous. I mean, he spends you know unlimited amount of money to to get to build the best that he can or to get the best that he can for his son Solomon. So I think it's impressive that. His zeal doesn't wane, even though he wasn't the one that's supposed to do it. Good point. Brian. Why is it then that uh, Nathan would tell David that God is going to listen or whatever he wants to do, but when in fact he hasn't really received work from God yet? 
I think that's an excellent question. I guess Nathan assumed that he knew God would be happy with it when he wasn't. I mean, I, I don't know. What do you guys think? I mean, I think Nathan probably overstepped his boundaries a bit there, didn't he? He should have said, well, let's inquire into the Lord. Yeah. I, mean, I, I don't really see exactly a way of saying that Nathan did the right thing there. I mean... I, I, I can see I can see doing that, but I, I think really inquiring of the Lord first would have been Nathan's better choice. So I, I think Nathan sort of spoke for the Lord without his permission. It's kind of practical for us today. I mean, it's kind of like we have an idea or a plan. Uh, to, I mean, to do something even spiritually to try and build people up or to try and uh, reach the lost or, or anything like that, and you know, we, before we, you know. Uh, like you said, talk, talking about before, we talk to our brethren about it, but what we really should do is, is go to the Lord about it. And I mean, when we go, when people come to us, talking to us about the kind of plan they have, we should say, well, let's pray about that instead of. Pray about it, maybe even study about it. You know, what has the Lord revealed about that? Sometimes we're too quick to use our own reasoning. I am. You know, it sounds good to me. I like the idea. God surely must like it, yeah. We're not as smart as we think we are. You know, just because something sounds good to me doesn't mean God likes it. You know, we've got to come to grips with the fact that, that our judgment about things and God's will may be totally different. Brad. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Kevin. I was just thinking of what you talked about earlier with Nathan. Uh, it kind of reminded me of some of the things you, you made the point about uh, Uzzah in that situation. Uh, that just because David was, it seems maybe that Nathan was thinking, you know, the Lord has been with you, the Lord has done all these things for you because you've been serving him and been faithful to him. Maybe that's the same idea uh, with what didn't work for for David in, in the situation with moving the ark. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't good enough that, that God had been with him in the past and that God, that God that he was pleasing to God overall, but they still needed to inquire of God uh, and, and see what his will was. Good point. Other comments? Good, good discussion. 
Well, how's David going to respond to this? Somebody want to read 15 to the end of the chapter? According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Then David the king went, went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought, it, brought me this far? And this is a small thing in your eyes, O God, but you have spoken to your servant's house for a great while to come. They have regarded me according to the standard of a, of a man of high degree, O Lord God. What more can David say? What more can David still say to, to you concerning the honor bestowed in your servant? For you know your servant, O Lord, for your servant's sake, and according to your own heart, you have wrought all these all this greatness to make known all these great things. O Lord, there is none like you; neither is there any god beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what and what one and what one nation in all the earth is like your people Israel, whom God went to redeem for Himself as a people, to make you a, na- a name by great and terrible things, and driving out nations from before your people, whom you did reveal did, did redeem out of Egypt. For your people Israel, you made your name your own, for, you made your own people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord. Let, let the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house be established forever, and do as you have spoken. And let your name be established and magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God of Israel, even a God to Israel. And the house of David your servant is established before you. For you, O my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build a house for him, that you will build for him a house. Therefore your servant have found courage to pray before you. <coughs> And now, O Lord, you are God, and have promised this good thing to your servant. And now, have, and now it has pleased, pleased you to bless the house of your servant, that, that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord, have blessed, <coughs> blessed forever. That's pretty cool, don't you think? This is a neat prayer. And uh, you see several things in it. As you look at the first part of it, say in 16 to 19, what's David saying to God? Why would he say that? How's he feeling? Human? Human? (laughs) Unworthy, yeah. Very unworthy. Uh, He can't believe that God has promised to do such a wonderful thing for his servant, David himself. The honor that he's giving him is just amazing to him. He's He's so overwhelmed. You know, he, he uses that word servant in nearly every verse here. He, that's, that's all he sees himself as being, and yet God is giving him these wonderful, promised blessings. And he's just overwhelmed by it. You know, you, I'm nobody, but, but you've regarded me according to the standard of a man of high degree, O Lord God. It's interesting, throughout this uh, prayer, there's lots of uh, uh, addressing God. O Lord, O God, O Lord God. It's a very personal prayer. You know, usually if somebody uses your name a lot when they're talking to you, they're kind of emotional about it. And, uh, and, and I think David really is. This is amazing. Um, he's, he's, just, he's just overwhelmed by what God has promised. And then in 20 to 22, what's he saying? Yeah. He's talking about the greatness of God. I mean... He's just awesome. There's no nation 
It's never had a God like this God who's done the things that he's done. You know, look at what a God he's been to his people. So he's just praising God. And then in 23 to 27, what's he saying? So what's he what's he saying? What's he asking for? For God to fulfill his promise, exactly. May, may, may this happen according as you've said. You know, let the word you've spoken concerning your servant, concerning his house, be established forever. Do as you've spoken. Now, there's a couple things in that that are interesting. Doesn't it seem strange? Why would you ask God to do what he promised to do? If God promised it, won't he do it? So why bother asking? Why shouldn't we ask God for things we don't know that he'd do already? Yes, that's true. But still, don't you know he's going to do it? Absolutely. There is, you know, we, we, I hope that what I said just now didn't seem reasonable or right to us. You know, what we ought to ask God for in prayer are the very things He's promised. We ask for God's will to be done. The fact that God promised it is the reason to ask. You know, we should be hesitant to ask for things that He's not promised, and certainly things that He's indicated we shouldn't ask for. What we really want is for God to do what He said He's going to do. And so, very often in Bible prayers, they are directed by the promises. They pray and ask God to fulfill the things that God has told them that he wants to do. We have, we have this idea that what we want to do when we come in, to God in prayer is, is, you know, try to twist God's arm to do some things that he really didn't want to do. No. What we really want is God to do exactly what he wants to do. And that's what we're praying that he do. So he prays for God to do that. But, but look at verse 24. Let your name be established and magnified forever. You know... He's asking that God do this so that God can be glorified. He sees that this is part of the purpose and plan of God, and he wants God to do this, not so he'll be exalted, but so God will be exalted. You've revealed this, and therefore I have the courage to pray to you, uh, and, 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 you know, I, I pray that you'll do this, for you, O Lord, are blessed, and it is blessed forever. So he's praying that God fulfill the promise for God's glory and honor's sake. This is just a classic prayer. I mean, it'd be hard to find something better than this. I mean, he's, he's humbling himself and just overwhelmed by the blessing. He's praising God, and he's asking God to fulfill the word that he's, he's promised. Or is he speaking third person in verse 18? Yeah. Well, isn't that sort of like a respectful way of talking to God. I mean, he is doing that too when he keeps speaking of your servant. Who does he mean by your servant? Me. <laughs> but you say your servant and it seems a little more respectful. That's all I know. I just didn't know if that was my translation. Maybe. No, it isn't. What more can David say? Yeah, I still say, yeah. Uh, that is a little weird. Uh, 
And he does it again in 24, the house of David, your servant, is established before you. I don't have a real good answer. Kyle? It's to see that, I mean, David starts first with looking at his own insignificance. I mean, he couldn't properly praise God and put him in the right position if he didn't realize first how worthless he was. In Psalm 8, David writes uh, that when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have ordained, what is man you think God is? Good point. Well, certainly, you know, what we ought to want is God's will to be done and God's promises to be fulfilled. I mean, you know, what, if you knew God wanted it this way, would you even want to consider something else being done? God's will is perfect. You would never want anything other than exactly what God wants. You couldn't ask for better than that. It goes back to trust and faith in God. I really like this prayer. I think this is this is a classic. Other thoughts on seventeen? All right, very good. Um, we're going to take a break for supper. Center may not have it quite ready yet. We're going to. Why don't we have a prayer and, and uh, give thanks for the food, and then I'll say a couple things to you before we uh, actually go upstairs. Um, Brad, Berthold, do you want to lead us in prayer?